Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 22. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. There are times in our lives when we will come to Scripture and we will read a text and there will be things that are difficult for us to understand. Maybe like this text. At times, we're going to think to ourselves, what in the world does that even mean? How does that even apply to me? Because it might seem initially that the text is confusing. And then there are going to be other times when we will look at text and we will read the Bible and we're going to be confronted with a truth that perhaps is disturbing to us, maybe like this one. A truth that is initially unsettling to our hearts. A truth that will cause us to wrestle with what God is actually saying. And the implications of some of these texts are going to upset us. Like the, the text about people being cast into hell. Right? Though that is exactly what all of us as sinners deserve, it still should upset us if we have compassion at all for other people. The, the idea, the prospect of anyone being, being sent to hell for eternity and <clears throat> away from the presence of God should unsettle our hearts if we really care. Or how about the text in, in Romans 9, where before they were even born, God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That before they could do anything right or wrong, God had already decided who will receive his blessing and who wouldn't, who would be saved and who wouldn't. And we would read a text like this and some of us would even say and protest and say, well, that's just not fair. But then we're immediately confronted by scripture that says, but who are you, oh man, to, to answer back to God? Will, the, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? There are just going to be times when we will wrestle with the word of God and it will make us uncomfortable. It will, it will upset us. It will, it will make our hearts sink. And, and when that happens, then we are tempted many times to overlook right, what, what the text says or to dismiss what it says and just say that doesn't apply to me or I'm just not going to consider that or, or we will try to explain it away with some other alternative ex- explanation. In fact, that is a very common occurrence that happens when people are confronted with the sovereignty of God. Many people don't like the idea and the implications of God being completely sovereign, even though the Bible makes it clear that is absolutely the truth. And so many people will then then develop complex theological frameworks based on philosophy rather than the word of God in order to try to explain away these different texts. 
But the fact is, if we're going to be true, if we're going to be true to the word of God, we cannot allow ourselves to do that. But rather, we must confront all the texts head on. We must, we must take each text, regardless of what it says, and we must seek to understand what God is saying in its context, and then taking that text and applying it to our lives, regardless of what the text says. Because what we need to remember is the word of God is absolutely, unequivocally true. The word of God is, as we profess here at First Baptist Church, is the inspired word, which means it is God-breathed. It is the very words of God. It is also authoritative, which means it must be obeyed. It is inerrant, which means it is without error. And it's infallible, which means it cannot be wrong because it is the truth. As our statement of faith here at First Baptist Church affirms, the Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. The word of God is always true. It is also always good. Because God himself is good which means that everything that's found in the Bible ultimately glorifies God and ultimately is what's best for us even when the truth is difficult to understand or difficult to take. The Word of God is always good. And the Word of God always has a purpose. There's a purpose for every book of the Bible. There's a purpose for every verse. There's a purpose for every word. Even if you don't like the implications of it, even if you don't like what it says, even if you don't like certain books because you read through numbers and you're getting stuck on like how many tent pegs are being made, right? Every verse, every word is there for a purpose and ultimately every text glorifies God and edifies us. And so with that, we must then submit our hearts to the word of God and not the other way around. We must submit our hearts to the word of God and not the word of God to our hearts because the truth is, oftentimes we will encounter difficult texts or a difficult doctrine of the church and our default setting is to try then to understand that text in a way that fits our heart. We try, we try to bend the, the text around our feelings or our preconceived ideas. We try to get God's word to fit us. But we must always set aside that temptation to take the word of God and bend it towards our hearts. Right? What we need to do is we need to take our hearts and bend it to the text. Our hearts must be conformed to the text. We must, as, as, as John Piper say, never rise above the text, even if the text itself shakes us up and rocks our world. Even if, right, and let's be honest, right? this text right here that we're going to talk about today has that potential to really shake us up and rock our world. The idea that there is something that a person can do that will permanently disqualify them from salvation and eternal life rocks our world. I mean, look what Jesus says. He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I mean, this is a text, this is one of those moments in, in Scripture that should cause you to sit up and take notice. It should stop us in our tracks. It should make our hearts sink at least a little bit because there's a clear warning here. And, and there's a, certainly a reminder in this text that, number one, God does not wink at sin. Sin is a big deal to him. It has consequences. 
right? We might laugh about it. We might joke about it. But ultimately, God hates sin. We might not think it's a big deal, but it is always a big deal to God. And number two, sin is going to, to be dealt with by God. God is not going to ever be neutral about sin. He will either forgive it or he will punish it. He will forgive it through Jesus Christ and faith and repentance in him or he will punish it. Right? God is never, ever, ever neutral about sin. God will deal with it. And Jesus is saying that a person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, which means they will certainly be punished unquestionably, which means we need to take this warning very serious. And really examine this text for, for what is being communicated here, which then leads us to three important questions I think that we need to examine today. Beginning with number one, is there really an unpardonable sin? Is there really a sin that a person can commit that makes them beyond redemption? And if so, question number two, what is it? I mean, it says whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that actually mean? What, is, what does that involve? How does, how does one blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because I certainly hope I've never done that. Which then leads also to the third important question. Can a Christian commit the unpardonable sin? Can a believer do something that makes him be on redemption? Now, <clears throat> all right, these right here are very important questions. And, and I want you to know like, the answer to the first one is the easiest one to answer. The answer to the first one is yes. There is an unpardonable sin. There is a sin that if it's committed, a person will be consigned to hell forever. And no, as the Romans might, the Roman Catholic Church might say, it's not suicide. That is not the unpardonable sin. But there is. And there is, and there is something that no, there's no returning from, and Jesus makes that clear. There is an unpardonable sin. Now, the, the answer to the, the other two questions, what is this sin, and, and, and can Christians commit it? These questions are going to require a little bit more digging and a little bit more exposition of the text. We need to get our answers from Scripture and not from our feelings. And so turn with me then to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to take a look at this. Now, before we actually dive into the text, let me just take a moment and give you a little bit of context so you understand where we are in this narrative. Context is always, always, always important. So let's talk about what's happening because a lot's happened to this point. We're just in three chapters and a lot has happened. Jesus emerged as a nobody from nowhere, from, from, uh, from, from basically Nazareth. Nobody even knew who he was when, when he first arrived. And then he was baptized by John the Baptist in order to identify himself with sinners. And then he spent 40 days after that in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And then he emerges preaching the gospel saying that the time is now, the kingdom of heaven is here, and the way into that kingdom is to repent and believe the gospel. And as proof that his message is true and authoritative, Jesus physically heals people to cast, and he casts out demons. And he, and he does this over and over and over and over again throughout the entire area. These miracles that Jesus does, I want you to understand, are certainly acts of mercy done by God, but primarily their function is to establish and demonstrate Jesus' authority to proclaim the good news. And this message was preached throughout the region of Galilee, and Jesus healed many people in every city in the region. And Jesus' preaching and his healing ministries brought him into conflict with the spiritual forces of darkness, specifically Satan and his demons. But it also brought him into conflict with a group of people called the scribes and Pharisees, a very politically strong uh, group of, of Jewish men. 
And long story short, these men, because of the hardness of their hearts, were not going to be convinced by Jesus' word or his miracles. And so they made up their minds that he was a blasphemer, that he was a Sabbath lawbreaker, that he was a false prophet. And because of that, then they needed to kill him. That was the decision that they had come to. And then as we talked about last week, then Jesus' own family, Jesus' own family, who were probably in Nazareth at the time when they heard the news, heard about what Jesus was doing and the danger that he was in, and they believed that Jesus was absolutely nuts. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind because they did not truly understand or know who he was. And so they decided they were going to go to Capernaum in order to force him to to come home with them. Now, before they can actually get there to Capernaum and confront Jesus, and I want you to know Mark actually records their arrival in the very next section after today's text in verse 31. But Mark, before they can get there, takes the opportunity to talk about another confrontation that's happened at the time to... um, uh, this confrontation that happens with a different set of Pharisees. And what you need to realize is Mark has taken these two stories and put them together um, in order to contrast and illustrate a very important point. And, And the point is that those who don't know Jesus Christ, those who don't believe in him, when they are confronted with the truth about who he is, their reaction is either to dismiss him because they think he's crazy or to label him as evil and demon-possessed. Those are the two typical reactions. And, and those are the, really the reactions that people actually have even today. C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Mere Christianity, makes it very clear that, that, we, that when, when people today are confronted with the truth about who Jesus is and what he claims to be, there are only three options that a person has to, available to them. Jesus is either a lunatic or crazy, as his family supposes, or he is an evil liar who is not a good man but an instrument of the devil, as the Pharisees suppose, or he is exactly what he claims to be, which is the Lord. Understand, there are no other options. There's not four options. There's not five. There's three. And the options are he's either a well-intentioned man, but he's out of his mind, He is either the epitome of evil and he's leading people astray purposefully or he is exactly what he claimed to be, which is the Lord. There is no middle ground. Given what Jesus actually says about himself, as we've seen here, there are no alternatives. And Mark sets up, set that up for us to see. He's either crazy, as his family says, he's either demon-possessed, as the Pharisees say, or he is what he claimed to be. So let's look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. Now there is a couple of things that we need to deal with in this text. And the first thing I want you to notice is that there is a detail that is really, really easy to overlook in this text. And the reason why I say it's easy to overlook is because I overlooked it a bunch of times. I mean, I've read this text more than 20 times just this week in preparation for this message, and I've read this text over and over and over again throughout my my Christian life. But only this week, right, as I was reading through it over and over again, did I notice, finally notice this detail, right? It says, hey, the scribes came down from Jerusalem, right? Now, now you might have picked up on that, but... I might be slowing the uptake here, right? These were scribes, right, and Pharisees that were not from Galilee, but were from Jerusalem, 
I just assumed that we were always talking about the same group of people following Jesus around. I missed that detail. Right? And what this means is this is not the same group of scribes and Pharisees that Jesus had been dealing with all this time. These are people, right, that, that these are not the people that, that he's been dealing with in the local area. These, are, these guys are from a different place. Right? It's, it's a group of, of people that are different. These are, these are Pharisees from Jerusalem, which means that the word about Jesus and what he's been doing was officially sent to the Pharisees in Jerusalem, which is really the headquarters of, of Judaism, all sects of Judaism, whether it's the, the, uh, um, the Sadducees or the Pharisees. Right? This, is, this is the headquarters of their faith. And the religious leaders there in the city sent down a delegation of scribes to investigate. This is a, an official delegation, which means Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees has just gotten much bigger. Right? These guys really were the kind of the big guns, so to speak. In, in, in fact, let me put it this way. This is like, 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 like a story where, where it went from a local county sheriff investigation to suddenly this is a federal investigation. It's kind of like, like the escalation there. This situation has escalated. The tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of Judea is growing very fast. And these official Pharisees from Jerusalem have, have now come to investigate what Jesus is doing, and they witness Jesus in action. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew, um, in, in that Gospel, in that version of this particular part of the narrative, we're told that Jesus actually cast out a demon of a man who is both, both blind and mute. Right? And he does this in front of everyone, including these men. This is the, that's the catalyst for their reaction to Jesus. Right? They see him perform a miracle, right? but, but, but don't acknowledge the truth about Christ. Instead, they say that he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Now, the name here in this text is rightly rendered as Beelzebul and not Beelzebub, as, as other versions um, render it, because the actual original Greek texts bear that out. And the name certainly has had many meanings over its, its, its etymology and course, but ultimately, it's an indictment against Jesus' very character because the name had come to mean at that time, the Lord of the Flies. How many of you read that book when you were in high school? Lord of the Flies. Okay, that's where they got, this, that's where they got the name from, right? It's from this text right here. The Lord of the Flies, which has its roots in Hebrew, um, which is actually the Lord of the Dunghill or the Lord of or Filth. Now, here in America, we use a different word for that, but I think you kind of know where I'm going, right? So it's not flattering. It's not a flattering label at all, right? In fact, what they're saying is Jesus is possessed by Satan himself, right? And they're saying it's by the power of Satan that he's casting out demons. And understand, this right here, in light of what Jesus is doing, is a shocking accusation, because they have just witnessed a divine miracle. They have witnessed the hand of God at work, and they attribute that work to Satan. They, they are, this is utter blasphemy. This is utter contempt for Christ. Right? This, is, this is Christ derangement syndrome. Anybody ever heard of Trump derangement syndrome? I don't care what political spectrum you're on. Right? The thing is, is there are people in our, in our country that are just so anti one party or another that, 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 that they're just so hateful. Like it doesn't matter if somebody does anything good, they're just going to be against them all the time. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus, no matter what he does, they, they're against him. You see, what this reveals is a very important point. It reveals that their minds are already made up. Their minds are already made up. They walk into the situation already convinced that Jesus is a false teacher. Their minds are already set. 
Right? They walk in the situation already convinced that Jesus was a blasphemer and a lawbreaker. They came in the situation with a preconceived idea, and they, they processed then the, the information and the experience they had based on their preconceived lenses, their preconceived ideas. You see, they didn't come to find what the truth was. They, were already look, they, they already had made up their mind. They were looking for a reason to kill Jesus. Their minds were already made up by what... By, by what they had been told. The scribes were looking for justification. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a way to justify their actions that they had already predetermined to do. And before we move on, let us not be hasty to sit in judgment of these men as if we're better than they are. Because we're capable of exactly the same things. We are all, every one of us, prone to have preconceived ideas that influence how we see things. We all do. In fact, we just talked about how we often have preconceived ideas about God and his word, and that causes us sometimes to misinterpret the text of of the word of God, sometimes accidentally and sometimes on purpose. We encounter difficult passages. Instead of reading the text and seeing what's actually there, we impose on the text right, our preconceived idea just like they're doing to to Jesus here. Secondly, we're prone to always look for justification for our actions. We make up our minds to do something, right, or that we need to do something or we have to do something, and then we look for justification that gives us, you know, the rationale to do it. And you all know what I'm talking about, right? We make up our mind, I really need a new car. And you walk outside and see a, a dinger in the door of the car and go, see, this thing's a piece of garbage, I need a new car, Right? You go look in the closet and go, I have nothing to wear. See, I need a new wardrobe. Right? I mean, and we even do it with our relationships, sometimes even with our, with our spouses, right? Well, you know what? We, we, you know, we're, we're restless about our relationship. We're not sure if it's going to work out. You know, and we kind of make up our mind that somebody else at the, at the office is cute, and all of a sudden we get into an argument. See, this is not going to work, right? We look for rationales. We do it all the time. We, we, we make up our minds of what we already want to do, and then we just look for ways to justify what we already wanted to do. And we do this with money. We do this with our jobs, with our education, with our friends, our families. And that's exactly what's happened here. This man, Jesus, right, is a threat to their power. And they, they have already decided, they've already made up their mind, he must die, but, but, but they cannot deny Jesus' power. Because Jesus is doing unbelievable things. He's been healing people of visible diseases and deformities. He's casting out demons. In fact, the man that he just helped was blind, mute, and demon-possessed. And out of, out of this, Jesus restores the man's sight, his ability to speak, and casts out the demon. What an awesome, awesome display of power they cannot deny. And so they close their eyes to the truth of Christ and his nature, and they simply repeatedly accuse him of of being an instrument of Satan. But notice how Jesus actually answers them. Verse 23 says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables. And I'm going to stop there because I want you to understand what's happening here. Remember, Mark's gospel is an action-packed gospel, moves very fast, and there's a lot being communicated in a short amount of text space. Right? This text right here indicates that, that now right, there's an important shift in how Jesus is going to deal with the Pharisees from here forward. See, up to this point, Jesus was very direct with them, and, and he addressed them clearly, and he demonstrated his miracles you know, um, uh, the, so to, to prove the truth about what he's saying. 
In fact, if you think about back to when Jesus had healed the paralytic man, he said to the man, you know, son, your sins are forgiven. And these men thought to themselves, well, you know, he's blaspheming. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, tells them what they're thinking. And then he says, in essence, so you know, so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I'm going to heal this guy. That's the essence of that exchange. Jesus answered them directly and indulged their doubts and was patient with him, but that time is over. Because, because from this time forward, Jesus is no longer going to address them you know, and their concerns directly. From this point, he's going to actually speak to them in parables, and he's going to be very critical of them. He's going to be, he's going to be kind of in their face because he's not going to play their games anymore. Right? He's not going to go back and forth with them because of their hard hearts. And what you and I need to learn from this <clears throat> is, that, is that not every question about your faith, not every question about your faith has to be answered. And, and what I mean by that is if you're witnessing to someone and they ask questions and express doubts, you should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. You should always be ready for that. But when you encounter someone who is so hard-hearted that they just simply want to argue with you and poke at you and provoke you and try to upset you, you don't have to answer them. You don't have to submit to their critical questions of you. If, you. if you make an honest attempt to share the gospel with them and they're, they're just simply antagonistic, then you can just let it go. You can walk away. Absolutely pray that God would change their hearts. And if they're ever receptive to actually having a conversation and being respectful, you can revisit the conversation. But you don't have to take a person's garbage simply because you're a Christian. And I want you to understand that. I want you to hear me on that. Because there's a lot of guilt that gets pushed on to Christians. It's because you're a Christian, people think that you should be a doormat. I thought she was a Christian. doesn't mean I have, to, I have to put up with people's garbage. It doesn't mean that I have to take people's criticisms. I don't have to let people walk on me. I'm going to love you. I'm, I'm going to certainly answer your questions the best of my ability, but when this becomes confrontational and you just want to be hateful, I have the right to just say, I'm done. Right? Jesus didn't put up with these guys either. Right? His patience with them only went so far. And he decides, I'm not answering your questions and your accusations anymore the way that you want me to. In fact, later on in chapter 8 of Mark, the Pharisees are going to demand Jesus perform another miracle to prove that he is what he claimed to be. In fact, it says in verse 11, Then the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, testing him by demanding from him a sign from heaven. Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Right? It's like, I'm not doing it. I already told you. I already did the miracles. I did miracle after miracle, and you, and you witnessed it. I'm not doing it again. I'm not playing your games. And so Jesus, in this moment, changes how he addresses the Pharisees. And, and, and what we see here is he's going to begin to use parables to communicate the truth. He says... How can Satan cast out Satan? Which is exactly what they're saying, right? They're saying that Jesus, by the power of Satan himself, is casting out demons who are serving Satan. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand, which is absolutely true. Kingdom at war with itself will eventually collapse. A nation that's divided ultimately will succumb to its own weight. That's why we see what we're seeing right now in our own country. We're witnessing the collapse of our culture and our country at large. See, no one from the outside has been powerful enough militarily to undo 
the, the, the great American experiment, but our enemies have figured out if they can spread the seeds of Marxism, intersectionality, and the sexual revolution within our culture, the culture would simply just tear itself apart. And it's happening right before our eyes. We're a deeply divided nation. And we're divided over all the important things. We're divided about marriage and sexuality and faith and even, even human life itself. The, 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 the far leftists in the country have convinced a growing population of people that a person changing their gender is a scientific reality while a person being human before they're born is science fiction. The leftists have convinced a growing number of people that socialism will work in the United States even after all the evidence, all of the evidence, all of the evidence points elsewhere. Every country that has implemented socialism has failed. It doesn't work. It always fails. Now, I understand. Right? I, have, I have hope for our country. I have deep hope for our country. I pray for our country. I want our country to continue to grow. I want my kids to inherit a nation that's better than, than, what, than what, what we leave behind. Right? I, have, I have hope but if this division is left unchecked, we will absolutely tear ourselves apart. There has never been a nation in all of recorded history that survived its own success. There's not been a nation, I want you to understand that, there's not been a nation in all of recorded history that's ever survived its own success. The kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And the Jews understood that because the nation of Israel was once a united nation under David and Solomon, and then became divided, and then ultimately was easier to conquer as two individual nations. And so when Jesus says a house, then he, then he goes on and says a house divided against itself, a house will not be able to stand. So he goes from kingdom, and now he talks about a house. He's, he's, it's, it's a similar analogy, but a, with a different emphasis. Because this is clear. We all know that when there is division in, ho- at the, in, in the home, if there's division inside the family, if there's division at work, if there's division on a team, if there's division in a band, if there's division in the church, right, things get to go bad really quickly. When, when people are part of a family and, and, and that family essentially goes to blows, things fall apart really fast. Families and, and households don't stand when they're divided against each other. And then Jesus says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. What I want you to understand through these parables, what Jesus is demonstrating is the scribe's logic is absolutely fundamentally flawed. That's the whole point of, of, of him using these parables. The accusation is just absurd. It's ridiculous. It's not even remotely plausible. The idea that Jesus has, has brought healing and relief and freedom to these people from the bondage of, you know, of demons by the power of the prince of demons is just simply stupid. It's It's laughable. They have no credibility. Right? What Jesus is exposing when he, when he, when he uncovers their flawed logic is, he ex- is exposing what the real problem is. And the real problem is they have hard hearts. That's the problem. It's the hardness of their hearts. Their hearts are so hard they simply refuse to acknowledge the truth that's plain and simple in front of them. They are willing to believe something preposterous in order to avoid the truth. And people do that all the time. Like the atheist who says he doesn't believe that God created the entire universe, but then has to like, affirm that they believe that, that everything came out of nothing. Right? It's preposterous. We all know that's not even possible. Or the atheist that, that, that won't believe in the intelligent design 
of, of the universe, right? But they will believe in the existence of what's called the multiverse, which is this idea with no evidence at all, this idea that there's a, a even greater universe that generates smaller universes like our own, and, and it's been doing so for, for an infinite time in, in, in time past, and it's created an infinite number of universes with different variables to where we finally accidentally have the right one by chance fine-tuned by which we find ourselves in that, that sustains life. They will believe that, but they won't believe that there is an actual intelligent creator. This is stubborn disbelief. And that's what, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed against heaven and against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their what? Unrighteousness suppress the truth. By the way, this is the, the, the verse that says there are no real atheists. Everybody believes in God instinctively, right? It's just we just suppress our truth. Jesus has just demonstrated these men who he was. He's demonstrated it to these men, and they suppress the truth. They're just simply, you know, patently denying the truth in their sinful, willful disbelief. They don't want to believe this because their hearts are hard, and Jesus is calling them out on it. And then, once he establishes how stupid their accusation is, he then turns it around on them, and he uses another parable, and he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless his, he first binds a strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder the house. Now, this right here is a parable that might seem really weird to us because we don't live in a first century Jewish culture. This story kind of is odd because instinctively, I think, when we look at a story like this, we're going to think, well, the strong man must be the good guy, right? And, and, and the person who does the plundering, because plundering is supposed to be bad, right, is, is the bad guy. But, but that is not how the analogy works here because this is not a morality story. This is an illustration, an analogy to make a point. And the analogy is, is the strong man in this, this, this parable is, is Satan. That's who the strong man is, right? And he is the strong man because he is, he's very powerful. Our, our, adverse, our, um, our adversary is, is, is very strong because we on our own cannot like, contend with the likes of him. And his house in this parable is the kingdom. It's his kingdom, which is the world. Because Satan is the ruler of the world. The world is his kingdom. Since the fall of man, Satan had become the ruler of the world. In fact, John in chapter 12, um, I'll just tell you, uh, John in chapter 12, he is called the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's called the god of this world, with little g. Right? So the devil is the strong man, the house is his kingdom, and then the goods of his house are, that, that are to be plundered and taken, are humanity. The things that he possesses is humanity because all men are born into Satan's kingdom. We are all born in the kingdom of this world. All men belong to him. They are, we are enslaved to him. We are his possessions. But notice, Jesus says, if a person's going to break into the strong man's house, his kingdom, and take his goods, release the prisoners, he needs to bind the strong man up. And what Jesus is saying through this parable is, I'm the one who has, who, who has tied the strong man up. I'm the one that has bound Satan. He is powerless against me. I have entered into his kingdom, and I am already plundering his goods. I am setting the captives free. Every time I do a miracle, Right? I'm setting one of them free. Every time someone believes in me, I'm setting someone free. Remember what Jesus said 
when he first went into the ministry, he says the time is now and the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is now invading the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of Satan is under attack by Jesus. He is on the offensive against the devil and his army. That's why Jesus' first act after he was baptized was to go into conflict with the devil for 40 days and he defeated the devil with the sword or the word of God. Jesus is setting captives free because he has overpowered Satan and soon he will overpower Satan forever when he dies on the cross for our sins and, and, and then is resurrected, proving that sin and death, the enemy's weapons against us, have, have been defeated. Jesus is saying, right, you can absolutely see the kingdom of Satan is under attack, but you stupidly claim that it's being attacked by himself. No, it is under attack by me. God in the flesh. And then he uses this warning. He says, Truly I say to you, all sin will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever blasphemes, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will n never has forgiveness, but is guilty of, e of e an eternal sin. For they were saying, he, is, he has an unclean spirit. Now, the very first thing that you need to notice here is Jesus is using the expression, truly I say to you. This is the first time in Mark that, that he uses this expression, but it's not going to be the last time. In fact, this is an expression that gets used about Jesus over and over again. Because what Jesus is now doing is he is expressing his own authority as the word of God. See, the word truly actually means the word amen. It's the same word. But people usually use it at the end. He's using it at the beginning, right? Because what he's saying is, he's not saying that truly scripture says. He's not saying truly the prophet says. He's saying truly I say to you, I declare to you. This, this is the equivalent of the prophet saying, thus says the Lord. The Pharisees accuse him of being an agent of the devil and he destroys their argument and then he doubles down, right? He doubles down on who he is. Remember, Mark opened up the gospel proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God then he proves it by recording Jesus' miracles of healing people and casting out demons and then Jesus himself declares that he can forgive sins and who but God can forgive sins, right? He also demonstrates that he's the omniscient God because he knows people's thoughts and then, and then he says that he's even the Lord of the Sabbath. That he's the owner and Lord and master of the Sabbath itself. And then in this moment, Jesus says, truly I say to you, by my own authority, I say to you. He's expressing to them his divine nature. And then he says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, I want to just take a moment and ponder this, this part of the verse because with all of our focus being on the unpardonable sin and our worry about that, this is a point that's easy to miss. Jesus is making it very clear that every person who repents and believes the gospel will be forgiven. It's as simple as that. All their sins, right? Every person who turns to Christ in faith will be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news right here. It's so easy to miss because we're focused on something else. But because, because what he's telling us is no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you could be saved if you repent and be, believe the gospel, that there's no one that's beyond the redeeming work of Christ. No one is beyond redemption. All sin, 
all sin will be forgiven of those who enter the kingdom through repentance and faith. No one is beyond redemption except those right, who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. The only people who can't be saved in this life are those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. So what does that actually mean then? What does it mean, right, if I say the whole, does it mean that if I say the Holy Spirit is, is just an invisible force, am I, am I guilty of that blasphemy? If I say that Jesus' works that he did was, was from the devil, am I blaspheming the, the Holy Spirit? If, if I say that the Holy Spirit isn't even God, is that blasphemy? If, if the Holy Spirit is, is, if I say the Holy Spirit's from the devil, if I, am I guilty of, this, of this, this sin that I can't recover from? What does this blasphemy mean? I mean, is this something that I can do accidentally or do I have to do it on purpose? Well, to determine that, we need to, to see in context what this confrontation has revealed about these men and what they're doing. And the first thing I want you to notice is this confrontation reveals, first of all, a hardened heart calls good evil. Because that's exactly what's happening here. These men are calling what is good evil. And this is not the first time that this has happened. If you remember that Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath, a man who had a horrible disability, whose life was completely changed by, by God and made whole, right, by Jesus basically saying, stretch out your hand. The Pharisees didn't see that as good. They saw it as a violation of the law. They saw it as something evil. Those who call good evil do so ultimately because they're the hardened hearts. And, and, and I hope that you notice the, the consistent theme here, right? Those who reject Christ, those who are in rebellion against God, do so because of what? Because of their hard hearts. That's what this reveals. And this is so vital to, to understand. When you're dealing with the lost, especially, when you're dealing with those who don't know Christ, those who reject Christ, ultimately, don't reject him for all the reasons they're going to tell you that they reject him. They ultimately reject him because of their hard hearts. And, and understand, if you're a believer, right, you also at one time had a hard heart. We all had hardened hearts, every single one of us. And, and the thing that we need to understand is, is as we deal with those around us, only God himself can change that. Only he can remove a, a, a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Our job, as we say over and over again, is to, to cast the seed to love them, to pray for those that are lost and not give up on people. That's our job. That's, that's the part that we play, right? Because, because that's all we can do. We cannot change someone's heart. Only God can do that. And so the issue always comes down to a hardened heart that results then in, in spiritual blindness that is willful and intentional. Spiritual blindness that is willful and intentional. And what we, will, what we see here, these men's denial, is really kind of in your face. They see the facts, that, that, but they won't surrender to them, right? Their, their preconceived ideas about Jesus is, is shaping and, and influencing how they're seeing the, the information. Their blindness is, is willful and intentional, right? That's, it's the same with all people who reject Christ. We willfully and intentionally reject him. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their spiritual blindness is willful also and intentional, which leads then to a verbal declaration that is continual and unforgivable. 
And what you'll understand is this sin is not simply a one-time accidental slip of the tongue. Right? This is not even a willful defaming of the character of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is a continual verbal declaration that reveals a defiant hard heart. In fact, in his commentary, Daniel Aiken quotes William Lane, who puts it this way. He says, blasphemy is an expression of defiant hostility towards God. That's the da- this is the danger which the scribes expose themselves when, when they attribute to Satan the redemption brought through Jesus. The expulsion, he says, of demons, which is the casting out of demons, was a sign of the intrusion of the kingdom of God. Yet the, scri- the scribal accusations, the accusations that they were hurling at Jesus, against Jesus, amount to a denial of the power and the greatness of the Spirit of God. By assigning the actions of God to a demonic origin, the scribes and the Pharisees betray a perversion of spirit which, in defiance of the truth, chooses to call light darkness. In the historical context, and this is the part to pay attention to, in the historical context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and the grace of God released through Jesus' word and his actions. Or, in other words, it is quite simply a conscious and ongoing rejection of the gospel. Daniel Aiken defines it this way. He says, The unpardonable sin is knowingly, willingly, persistently to attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. The unpardonable sin is knowingly, willingly, and persistently to attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. In essence, it's a hard-hearted rejection of the gospel. An ongoing, hard-hearted rejection of the gospel. Now, now that we kind of have a working understanding of the unpardonable sin, let's further define so that we can, we can actually answer the last question. Can a, can a Christian commit this sin? So first of all, the sin is in of full knowledge. It's a sin of, of knowing the gospel and knowing what is being offered and then refusing it. These men could see the power of Christ. They, they knew what he was claiming to be, but they still rejected him. It's, it's a sin of knowledge. Right? People that reject the gospel know the gospel and they continue to reject it. Secondly, the sin is also an ongoing disposition of the heart that resists conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is a stubborn, hardened heart. It's a heart of stone like we, like we have all had. The reason why people reject Christ and rebel against him is because of their hard heart. They need to have a heart transplant. And only God can, can give that. They are resistant to the word of God. They are resistant to, to preaching. They are resistant. And then number three, it's a verbal act that attributes the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. It's to say that the gospel is evil or, or dangerous. Now, many people today, I want you to understand, many people today don't even say that the gospel is from the devil because most people today, even many Christians, don't even believe in the devil. And so they they discount that. But what they will say is they believe that the Christian message is dangerous. They will believe that the gospel is evil. They will will say, right, that they believe that that Christianity is, is the cause of evil and war around the world. They will call good evil. And the next, it's the willful rejection of God's grace in Jesus. 
You see, God, by his grace, provides a way for us to be redeemed and a way for, uh, in that way, is only Jesus Christ. There is no other way. End of story. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. But these men continually rejected Christ. You can't have grace. You can't have salvation without Jesus. There is no, there is no other name under heaven and on earth by which to be saved. And then it's rooted in unbelief because of their hardened hearts. They will simply not believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he can do what he promised to do. In spite of the overwhelming evidence, they will believe the opposite. They will not repent of their old traditions and believe. Their, their old wineskins right, will burst with the gospel. They will not turn away and believe. And so given all of that, it is a sin, you hear me, it is a sin that cannot, that a Christian cannot commit. It is a sin that a Christian cannot commit. Because by definition, a Christian cannot commit the unpardonable sin. Because knowing the gospel, they have already repented and believed. Their hearts are no longer hardened to the Holy Spirit because God has already, by His sovereign grace, changed their hearts. And they don't reject Christ because they've received Christ as Lord and Savior. So by definition, any person who truly has been converted and is a Christian cannot commit this unpardonable sin. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Right? In fact, it is a sin not committed by one who is concerned that he or she may have committed. Right? Or in other words... The simple fact that you worry about committing the sin is proof that you have not committed the sin because those whose hearts are hardened this way don't care if they have committed the unpardonable sin. These men are not concerned about the consequences. They don't see that there's any reason for them to repent of the rejection of Christ. They don't think what they're doing is wrong. It's kind of like the idea. Right? If you protest that, that, you're, that you're sane, you might be insane but those who question their sanity are usually sane. Does that make sense? It's the same here. If you worry about, about, about this kind of blasphemy, your worry itself communicates that there is still hope for you and you're not beyond redemption. And this should bring us all, then, a sense of relief as we understand this. This is not like something you can accidentally do, right? If you trust in Jesus Christ, you have not and you will never commit the unpardonable sin. And if you're concerned about committing this sin yourself, then you're not beyond redemption. You can still be saved. And again, praise the Lord. That's good news. But with that, even with the relief that we experience from this, this text still needs to grab our attention because it reminds us of two important truths that we've already talked about. And that is, number one, God does not wink at sin. All sin is offensive to God. All sin is offensive to God. All the sins that you might joke about and laugh about and think is funny is offensive to God. God hates sin. Like there's no like middle ground there. God hates sin. It is because of sin the wrath of God is coming. It is because of sin that he killed his own son. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. God hates sin. All sin. He doesn't wink at it. Number two, Sin will be dealt with. God is not neutral on sin. He will either forgive it through the finished work on the cross of Jesus Christ of those who repent and believe in him, or it will be punished, and those who don't repent will be cast into hell forever. 
There is not a middle ground here. So let us not think to ourselves, whew, I didn't commit the unpardonable sin, so everything else I do is okay, right? Like, we, we need, again, we, we don't make ourselves saved by trying to make God love, but love us by our actions, but ultimately, if we really love God, we will have an appreciation for, for righteousness the way he does, and we'll begin to hate sin the way that he does. So, this should make us sober and conscious and serious about sin. Now, in light of that, what do we, what do, we do with that? Well, there's a lot of applications from this text, but I'm going to give you three really quick, and then I'm going to get you out of here. Number one, we need to always examine our presuppositions. All of us. When it comes to the Bible, when it comes about the way we see faith, when it comes to the way we talk to other people, I mean, there are times that we, we meet other people and we have presuppositions about them because of their last name. We think that they're going to act a certain way or be a certain way. Right? We have presuppositions about certain Bible passages, certain things we just don't want to come to terms with, and we just, we just impose on the text our point of view. Right? We do that about, about lots of situations. We do that about politicians. We don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We don't even always hear all the facts because we're just, our minds are set. We need, as Christians, to be willing to hear a matter before judging a matter. We need to always understand that we all bring to the table certain opinions and, and feelings and that we need to be able to set those aside. Secondly, you've got to always question your justifications. Because right? here's, here's the truth. The Bible says the heart is, des- is, is desperately wicked and it's deceitful. Right? It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Right? Who can know it? Like, it is more deceitful than anything else, which means your justifications aren't always legitimate. You need to be willing to look yourself in the mirror in, 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 in a, with a biblical worldview and say, is that really how it is? You know? <clears throat> I mean, lots of us justify our actions when we go to Facebook and start like, like letting people have it, right? We feel justified, right? Well, we might not really be justified. And and then finally, this is the one we're going to come back to over and over again, is we need to repent and believe, right? If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to repent of your sin and put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ in him alone, right? Repentance and faith are are, are two sides of the same coin. You turn away from something to, to embrace something. You're turning towards God, right? That's how a person comes to faith. But also, if you are a Christian, <coughs> excuse me, if you are a Christian, you need to continue to repent and believe. Because a person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will become, become conscious of their sin, and it will offend them too, and they will begin to continue to repent of that, and then continue to believe that God, that Christ has already healed them. Right? Those who have been saved, right, will continue to walk in repentance and faith. In fact, Paul Washer, one of my very favorite preachers, says, he says, the evidence that you truly repented and, and, belie- and believed long ago like you said you did is that you will still keep repenting and believing, but to a greater degree. That your life will manifest a life of repentance and faith. None of us are going to be perfect, right? But you will begin to see a, the fruit bear in our lives. And with that then, as we wrap up, we can praise the Lord that, you know, if we're believers, we're not going to commit the unpardonable sin. And if you're concerned about it, then you haven't already committed that sin. But ultimately, all of us need to go out into the world and share the hope of Christ and continue to live by faith and repentance. Because by faith and repentance, by you living that out, you become the light of the world. People will see in your lives the, the, the life-changing work of Jesus Christ. And then your words, when it matches that, will help to be, to be the fertile soil for, for, for the word of God to be cast on. And so let me pray for you 
before you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for, for your word. And we thank you for, for, for the truth, even when the truths are hard. In fact, these truths that we wrestle with are, are important to us, and they're good for us to wrestle with them. As, as your word reminds us that Jacob literally wrestled with God. And in that encounter, Jacob was, was transformed. He had a new name, a new identity, and he became a new man. And Father, that you would make us new by wrestling with these truths, that you would help to shape our understanding of who you are by these truths. That, Father, we would come and submit our minds and our hearts to your text. That we would submit our minds and our hearts to what your word actually says. That we would never take a posture to sit in judgment over you or your word, but we would we'd submit our, our hearts to the judgment of your word and your authority, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would raise up a people in here who are sold out for you, Lord God, that, that, are, that are completely sold out, Lord, to go out into the world and share the hope of Christ with our community and our neighbors and the rest of the world, Lord God, and that you'd raise up a new generation in this country, Lord, that, that would, would bring revival, Lord, that we would see a new awakening of, of the faith in Jesus Christ across our country, Lord God, and that your church, Lord God, would emerge um, and, and, and take his rightful place, Lord. And I pray, Father God, that you would be glorified in everything that we say and do here. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.